Yeah. Good evening. There we are. Mike should be on now. Hi. Um, I thought since we, we it's, it's Saturday night, we're all a bit, a bit sleepy. Had a lot of family fun just now. Um, I thought we could start with a story before we jump into the Bible tonight. Um, back when we lived in Yangon, Yangon is kind of the, it's the New York of Myanmar, if you, if you please. Only in the sense that it is the commercial capital and not the political capital. That, that is where the comparison breaks down. Um, but it is, that's where we lived. Um, we lived there for four years and, and I developed a bit of a running habit while I was there. Um, on Friday mornings, however, whatever else had happened in the week, Friday mornings, 5.15, I'd get up and I would run with the sunrise about eight miles around the lake. It's beautiful, beautiful. When nothing else is under control, you can have that run. It's a wonderful thing. And I'd run around and um, you'd get around. The first four miles were pretty miserable. Second four, as the sun came up over the lake, it was, it was beautiful. And as you come home down those last straights, you're thinking, I had that sweet, sweet sports drink. It's not Gatorade, but let's call it Gatorade. I had that sweet, sweet Gatorade to look forward to at the end. And nothing tastes as good when you are thoroughly dehydrated, my goodness. Um, now, you may know the cities in developing countries are fairly different to cities in the West. That's putting it lightly. Um, <laughs> Yangon is really good fun. Um, in Yangon, there, there are huge holes in the sidewalk, uh, and, and they reveal the storm drains underneath. So one of the constant challenges when you're walking around town is not to just disappear into a storm drain <laughs> with sewage and everything else. Um, we have friends who did it, poor them. But it's difficult when you're walking, when you're running, it's a real hazard. You know, you're, you're picking your way along. It's, it's, it's cross country. It's exciting. Um, but that's not the biggest danger. You've got traffic rules which are very, very loose. And so a taxi will just run straight through a red light and past you. Um, it's bizarre. Um, and then as soon as he's done that, from the other direction, a man on a bike with a chicken, live chicken, will just kind of yell at you. Um, so hazards everywhere, you're running everywhere, and yet we still haven't got to the strain, that, just the thing that struck me most, the biggest hazard, is the dogs. It's the dogs, my goodness. Dogs over here, right? Lovely things, on the whole. You know, pet them, feed them, scratch them, take them for a walk, lovely, right? Normally got one, maybe two. Dogs in Yangon and many developing cities live in packs. They live on the street, they've got open sores, mangy fur, they're just scavenging around. They're still kind of cute. Uh, they're asleep on the top of cars and in gutters and all this kind of thing. Most of the time, they keep themselves to themselves. They yell and scream through the night, but you know, not a problem. We coexist. Um, ah, gosh. One morning, I really learned the meaning of the expression, let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> My little run took me um, through a market district before I got out to the lake. And uh, markets, fresh meat, lots of dogs, right? So you're running along with the sunrise, or just before the sunrise, so the dogs are mainly asleep, and they're normally right there by the meat on one side of the road. You can safely pick a path around the other side of the road, just run past them, you're absolutely fine. I've done this numerous times. One morning I go out, and um, there they are, five dogs across the whole breadth of the road. And I think to myself, I'm a busy man. I've got a run to complete. I've got a bus to catch. Let me give you some advice. Don't, just, just don't. Don't. Go home, take a different route, do jazzercise. <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful way to get at that. Golly. Okay, Papa Dog hears me. Okay, I, sorry, before, I, 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 I make a strategy, right? I'm not just going to run uh, willy-nilly through them. So I'm going to pick my way through. I pick a route that I think is fairly safe. I soften my steps, all this kind of thing. 
I pick my way through, one step fine, two steps fine. Papa dog hears me. He's unimpressed, but he doesn't care. Um, next, mama dog hears me. She does care, she's got puppies. And all of a sudden, I'm sprinting along, knees to nose, elbows pumping, with five and gathering more and more dogs, barking, screaming, chasing me up the street. My goodness, it took 200 solid yards of all-out sprint to get away from them. They are fast. <laughs> My goodness. Um, Jazzercise, please. Goodness. Um, so, yeah, 200 yards, and that took me to the edge of the neighborhood. And I come out of the neighborhood onto this lovely boulevard, well, you know, kind of lovely. Um, and that's where all the other runners are. So you come out heaving, sweating, and there's everyone else full of, full of endorphins. No, no cortisol at all. They're all just chill, you know, bopping along, having the time of their lives as the sun comes up. And so what do I do? I hate that I'm like this. I'm like, oh, dear. Well, better imitate, hadn't I? <laughs> Just kind of keep it together, jog along, get the run done, pretend nothing's different, forget that you've just been chased by a bunch of probably rabid dogs. Get on with it. Get there. Gosh, I want that Gatorade. I fell asleep before work, before lunch at work that day. It was, it was a write-off, absolute write-off. The adrenaline was mad. Um, this section we're looking at tonight in Philippians is a little bit like that run. Only a little bit. <laughs> Um, he's located us in the middle of the story. There's, there's dangers in this story. There are dogs, literally dogs. Um, there's motivation, sweet, sweet Gatorade. And there are other runners to show us how to keep going when we're about to give up. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And let me pray before we jump in. Lord Jesus, we have many, many ideas and voices competing for our attention. We know that you are full of grace, that you are the source of all truth. Please, Lord, as we, as we run our race together, would you help us to, to see what is true, not to be deceived by error, but to live the lives you've called us to, knowing that we rest in your grace. Lord, please feed us through your word now. Teach us and show us how to live with you. Amen. Good. So, we're in the middle of the shorter story. We kind of zoom in on the stuff of life here tonight. And this morning we followed a bit of a greatest hits approach, going for a couple of those really famous sayings and seeing in context what they mean. Uh, tonight we're going to take a really quick run through most of the famous stuff in chapter 3. And we're going to focus on a little bit that we often neglect uh, towards the end of the chapter for most of our time together. Do spend time in the rest of chapter 3. I'm just gambling on the fact that most of you will have heard more on the first half than the second half of this chapter. Uh, we will cover the first half a little bit, though, because it is so good. Um, so three, things to, three, three looks this time. Look out, look, around, look out, look ahead, look around. That's how we're going to structure tonight's little time. Look out. So first of all, you'll see it. Um, have we read the passage? We haven't read the passage, have we? Golly, let's read the passage. Thank you. Saturday night, my goodness. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, counted, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And for verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We'll spend a little time on uh, verses 1 to 16, and then, as I say, we'll spend the majority of our time in that last chunk, 17, to the end. But we can't miss these, can we? We can't just skip over it. We've been talking about rejoicing to the end in the selfless, life-shaping love of Jesus. And here what we see is a arrival to that life-shaping some other way to shape your life other than the love of Jesus. I wonder if you saw it. These dogs, these evildoers, these who mutilate the flesh, they are trying to encourage the Philippians to put confidence in the flesh, to build up an impregnable fortress of holiness that can stand in the face of judgment. And that is slanderous to Christ. It denies the gospel. Paul makes this point really vividly. He says, if anyone could do this, it's me. I am, <laughs> it's, I love it. If you think you can do this, come at me. I'm better. I've done it. And yet, with everything you're looking to achieve, it is rubbish. Compared to what Christ has done. And putting confidence in that will not only not work, but it will lead you away from him. 
Um, it's interesting, to, the strong language he uses. This is why we talked about dogs in the first place. Um, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate. Three things to look out for there. Um, it's interesting that he uses the word dog to describe people who are trying to get them to be more Jewish, right? These teachers are trying to encourage them to put on the kind of boundary markers of Judaism. Circumcision, food laws, things like that. Maybe dress laws, other things like that. You might remember in the Gospels that dogs is a term often used by Jews to refer in a derogatory way to the Gentiles. And Paul flips this back at them and says, no, no, you are the dogs. If you submit those who have freedom in Christ to these rules, you are the dogs. Don't call them dogs. The second one's an inversion as well. Evildoers. We've thought so much through this book about how Paul keeps talking about co-laborers, fellow workers, fellow soldiers, companions, all these things. And he says, you are those things. These guys are the opposite. They are not co-laborers. They are evildoers. You are good doers. They are evildoers. You are co-laborers. They are anti-laborers. Don't be fooled. Those who mutilate the flesh, it's also a little word play on the next verse. Um, he says, those who, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. There's really no word play in English there. Uh, but I promise you it's there. The word play is between those who mutilate the flesh and uh, the circumcision. And it's a subtle difference. It's an obvious difference, but it's a subtle difference comparing those two. And he's saying, these guys think by telling you to do things like circumcision that they are doing something that is truer to the historic faith. But they are doing the opposite. They are cutting you up. They are mutilating and savaging you. We are the true circumcision. Well, who's we? We who partake of the grace of Christ. We who are in the gospel of Christ. Paul, Timothy, Silas, Luke, uh, Lydia, the jailer, this church at Philippi. Those in the covenant. So he says, look out. Look out for these people. Don't let them persuade you that you have to now start building an identity of some kind of legal works to really belong to Christ. You are his. So look out. Look ahead. I told you we're going quickly. You've really got to dive into this yourselves. It's wonderful. Um, look ahead. Uh, verses uh, 8 to 16. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I can count them as rubbish, these things, that I, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. It carries on. It's wonderful. Not that I've obtained this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Oh, down beneath, he says, Strain, forgetting what's behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Look out for the dogs and then forget the past. Don't worry about it. It's done. Look ahead. The Christian life is one where we're looking ahead. All things are rubbish compared to Christ. And I don't know about you, I cannot wait to be able to say that with an absolutely whole heart. I love that Paul can say that. I'm waiting for that day when Christ has done such work in me where I have that participation in the spirit, the comfort, the encouragement we talked about. To such an extent that I can say, yeah, it's all rubbish compared to Christ. We're getting there. We're seeing Christ more vividly. He's becoming more beautiful to us. It's an exciting thing to look forward to when he fills our imagination to that extent that everything else just seems like rubbish compared. But look ahead. Look at all the things we have in Christ. We, will be, we get to know Christ, to gain Christ and be found in him. 
to have that fundamental identity of ours be that we are his. That we have righteousness, true righteousness in faith through Christ. We know him and the power of his resurrection. That we are certain of that resurrection life. All these things we gain in Christ. Keep our eyes looking forward, not backward. We will attain the resurrection from the dead. And so we forget what's behind and looks to what's ahead. Much has been done. Much has happened. In many ways, good things have been done. And yet, fixating on the past and what's happened isn't the way we live as Christians. I was, um, <laughs> I was at physical therapy last week, and I, I just felt myself cringing as I said to my physical therapist, oh, yeah, you know, I... I I put on a funny voice to do it because I was embarrassed. I, said, I used to be an athlete, you know, talking about dumb things I've done and injuries and stuff like that. Um, and I, I kind of heard in my head, you know, I could have been a contender, that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and it's so sad, isn't it, when you put all your identity in things that were done once, things that could have been, things that were, rather than things that are and will come. I think about it in our, in our testimony culture sometimes. It's really sad when we, we tell testimonies and just talk about something that Christ did 20 years ago. Rather than what he's doing now. And what we're excited to see him doing as we go forward. It's good to remember those things in the past and to celebrate him with faith looking back to the cross. Absolutely. Looking back to the miracles he's worked in our lives. But that can't be our focus. We're straining to what's ahead. Gosh, that's good. And so we look, we look ahead. This is way too quick. I'm so uncomfortable going so quickly through this stuff. But we need to get, get there. I promise you it's worth it. Um, we look, at, uh, look out, look ahead. And then we look around. And this is where we're going to park for a few minutes now uh, on a Saturday night. Thinking about this part of God's word. So 17 and 18 onwards. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes as you walk, as you strain towards ahead. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's interesting here. I, I think we often miss in Paul. This is a constant focus. Imitate. Imitate. Yes, imitate Christ. But Paul is very unapologetic about also saying, imitate me. And imitate those who imitate me as we imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 literally says that. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is a fundamental model for Paul. It comes up in 1 Thessalonians as well. We'll come to that later. Uh, he's constantly saying... Imitate me. It is worthy and valid to imitate Christians who are a step ahead of us. Even though we know they are sinful and broken and not perfect. It's not only worthy, but it is incredibly valuable to us as Christians. Paul will not let this point go. Um, it's interesting that we, we're often tempted to be holier than the Bible. To take a truth from the Bible and then apply it in a way the Bible doesn't. And so we say, Christ is the only one who lived a perfect life, so we must imitate him. And really, it's dangerous to imitate anyone else, or to hold myself up as an example to be imitated. And yet Paul does exactly that. Paul is definitely aware of his sin. There's no doubting that. He's definitely aware of the sin of the other leaders around him. And yet he's just spent this, this letter telling them constantly, imitate others. Did you notice in, in chapter um, three, uh, chapter 2, sorry, um, he goes through four different examples to imitate. He goes with Christ, 
um, we thought extensively about that this morning. He mentions himself and how he lives. And then the end of the chapter, he gives two examples. One of a person they know of and one of a person they know intimately. Timothy, he's kind of famous. He's pastor, he's preached to them, they know about him. He's a big deal. He says, look at Timothy, be like him. And then he comes to Epaphroditus. And we're thinking, okay, why is this here? It's here because Epaphroditus is one of them. He's a member of their church. He's a guy who has lived sacrificially for the sake of the gospel, who almost died for their sake. I'm pointing this out because it is valid and worthy and really, really helpful to consider the people in our own church who, are, who we can imitate as we learn to grow in godliness. There's three types of imitation, uh, particularly, that we see in Philippians. That is how he thinks about death, is how he rethinks life, and how he rethinks persevering in the faith. We thought about how he thinks about death, uh, when we thought about what it means that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We've thought of it this morning again about how he rethinks life, living it like Jesus does. Um, giving up, living with open hands, open hearts, and open eyes. And now we're thinking about how he rethinks persevering in the faith. Um, I mentioned 1 Thessalonians. Look with me at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter two, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Sorry, He says, And you, Thessalonians, became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Again, in chapter uh, 2, verse 14, talking to the whole church, he says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. There's an extra angle to that, that we can imitate not only individuals in our midst and whom we know of, but whole churches can be an example, and then we can be examples to others. This is only possible because of grace, right? It's almost absurd and kind of hard to compute that this could be true when we know what we know about ourselves. And yet it is true. It is true by God's grace that he can turn us into something within the scope of this life that we can yet be worthy of imitation. And it makes sense, doesn't it, when you think back over your Christian life. Of course you've had role models. Of course there have been people who you think, I would love to grow a little more like them. Verse 17, let's come back there, locate ourselves. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's the kind of person we're looking to, to imitate. Um, I want to think about what it means to keep your eyes on those. It's, it's a different kind of verb to what we saw in look out for. Look out for is kind of a passive defensive thing. You know, like... Just beware these people are around. Here, the verb is, is a great one. It's one of those ones where it actually makes sense. Scopeo. Uh, scope it out. <laughs> it really does translate pretty much that well. Look into. Pay careful attention to. Look out for. Notice. So it's a duty for us as Christians to be looking out for people who walk according to the example we have in Paul. What does that mean? It means that we should expect there to be people like that in our midst. We should expect that God has worked such grace in the lives of people we know that they are genuinely imitating Paul, imitating Christ, and can be role models to us. He's done it with Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's not content to leave it there. He's saying, get into it. Keep looking. Look around you for these examples. This is how you're going to persevere. 
it seems a little bit vague in general. Keep your eyes on those who, who walk. It's an active work that requires two parts. First, we have to be able to recognize this in people. What does a Christ-like walk life look like? And then once we, we trained ourselves to recognize that, it's, uh, we have to, uh, we've got to think about what it means to actually live like them. How do we come alongside them? How do we scope out rather than just staying at a distance? Um, what does a Christ-like person look like? It looks like someone Paul's been mentioning. It looks like Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. It looks like Lydia and Philippi. It looks like Dorcas, uh, Tabitha and Joppa. There's examples upon examples. No, they're not perfect. Yes, they can be models for imitation. It's someone who rejoices in Christ and sees themselves as a partner in the work of the gospel. Think, do you know anyone like that? It's someone, whatever their work and family situation, who shapes their life around the reality of Christ and the promises he has made. Do you know anyone like that? It's someone who will willingly humble themselves and endure the scorn and mocking and harsh words of others. Taking comfort in the love of God and the participation they have in the Holy Spirit. And someone who will suffer and even choose suffering so that others would make progress and have joy in the faith. And someone who in that will themselves rejoice in Christ and pour themselves out for your sake. We're commanded to honor such people. Do you know anyone like that? You probably don't know anyone perfectly like that, but you may well know someone who is that any, something like that, something like that, who takes Christ at his word and lives like him as far as their brokenness will allow and rejoices that they get to do it. That kind of person or this kind of couple or whatever it might be, they probably delight in you even though you are everything that you are. They probably stand firm to love and protect you even when it's unpopular. They probably persevere as if this whole life isn't actually the aim. But eternity is. And whoever you might know who's like that, just to a degree, maybe a lot more than just a degree, they are worth imitating. They are worth considering, looking at, scoping out. How do they live? How do they do that? What drives them? One of the best things we can do is to jump on opportunities to spend time with them. Work alongside them. Get into the trenches. Um, a friend gave me some advice when I was graduating college. My senior year of college, final year of universities, I'd say. Uh, she said, take a job with people you want to become like. Take a job with people you want to become like. And we don't always have the option of, <laughs> of, of taking a new job, but that's this principle in action in a practical way. Um, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Uh, through church, even if we can't change job and go and work with people who we want to become like, in the context of church, we have that opportunity to draw alongside, to get into the trenches, to jump into service alongside people who we see and we think, whatever you're doing, I don't care that much about my own gifting. I'm going to jump in because you're doing it and I want to spend time with you. I want to see how you do. It's probably, I think, for a young Christian, the thing I'd recommend highest after Bible reading and prayer in our discipleship. And even then, it's going to transform your Bible reading and prayer because you're going to see them do it. You're going to see it pour out of them. And it's a wonderful thing. 
So that's the positive side of uh, imitation. There's a negative side to imitation, and Paul is not shy about it. Because the thing about imitation is that it's not neutral. We're either pursuing good imitation, or we're passively engaging in just hollow imitation. Look at me at verse 18. For many, it says, join in imitating me, verse 17. For, because many, as I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears. Hear those tears as you read this. Do not read this without those tears. Walk as enemies at the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These many are people the Philippians interact with. They know them well. Perhaps they were believers, perhaps not. But if you walk, if you live like them, you walk as an enemy of the cross. Even if by God's grace, you're not going to face the consequences. If you walk like that, you walk as an enemy of the cross. So there may be a call to repentance here. Perhaps you recognize that it is a pattern in your life that you spend a whole lot more time gazing at the works of those whose God is their belly. That means they chase their own satisfaction, their end is destruction, they glory in their shame, their minds set on earthly things. Perhaps that's you. There's repentance, there's forgiveness. If you imitate godliness, godlessness, sorry, if you imitate godness, godlessness and pursue it, you are living as an enemy of the cross. Consider what he says in verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their minds set on earthly things. They have no vision of life beyond this one. They fill up on all they can find because they're God's their belly. It might be food. It could be anything else. It's a metaphor. Whatever it is, people long to fill up with when their eyes are only on this life. They glory in their shame, boasting in how they live greedy, self-serving lives. No vision for eternal life. No rejoicing in Christ. Be very careful. Because it is far easier to keep your eyes fixed on this kind of life than on the lives of godly people. What we fix our eyes on shapes us. And that doesn't mean we take a fundamentalist view of culture and just write off whole swathes of media and say, you must not ever X, Y, Z. But it does mean we ought to be aware of certain facts. Let me, let me give you a few. Um, there's been a lot of research recently into to Gen Z, you know, kind of 15 to 23-year-olds and their screen habits. Um, on average, someone in Gen Z will use screen media for about 2,767 hours per year. That's seven and a half hours a day. Of that, a kid who is seriously committed to searching out spiritual content, who's going to church and is really committed to trying to do that, might engage with around 291 hours of spiritual content per year, about five and a half hours a week, if they're really going hard after it. And even then, what is that spiritual content? It's a mixed bag. It's a really mixed bag. We grow by imitation, and if our young people are watching, scoping out 10 to 20 times more imitation of the world with all these things, unfiltered compared to spiritual content, then we should not be surprised if they bear fruit. 
So scary, scary stuff. You wouldn't expect their lives to look like those who walk according to the example you have in us. We grow by imitation. It's not just them, though. Those numbers are really striking. And yet, let's remember that they're extreme, but they're not different in order to our own issues, whatever generation we're in. Let's not forget that when we say screen time, we're talking about Facebook, cable news, Netflix, shows, add in talk radio, add in the music we listen to and the messages it teaches us. It may well be that we're imitating a whole lot that has this world as its only aim, has no vision of eternity. It's not just young people being discipled far more on the whole by the world than by Christ. We grow by imitation into what we gaze at. So perhaps, yeah, perhaps you need to repent. Perhaps we do. But that's not my main point here. Paul weeps for these people because their end is destruction. But our citizenship is in heaven. I want you to see this. Our citizenship is in heaven. That is where we're going. It's the place where our true family is, where Christ is coming from on that day that we've talked about again and again through Philippians. When he brings all his promises to pass, including this wonderful promise to transform our lowly body with all its frailties to be like his resurrected body. So what I don't want you to do is to hear this challenge and revert back to the beginning of chapter 3 and say, right, my duty therefore is to build an impregnable fortress of holiness. You see how we would just miss the whole point if we did that. Don't go back to putting confidence in the flesh. Yes, read Colossians 3 verse 5 and take seriously the call to put to death um, those things that the world's flinging at your heart. But Paul is not asking you to self-flagellate, to beat yourself up, to mutilate the flesh. He's reminding you to rejoice. Reminding you to rejoice that there are wonderful examples around you. There is evidence that despite this world being what it is, despite the tears we must shed when we look at it, there are people whom the Lord has been at work in, who we can look to for encouragement when we find ourselves lost in the things of the world. We can look to them and say, hey, I long, I long to live a life that is more like Christ. And I'm so far separated from Christ that I don't know how to do that. But it looks a little bit like you're a little bit closer. Can I walk with you? Can I learn from you? Do you see how gentle Christ is? That in his word, he's so generous. He's constantly providing us with these ways, these realistic ways that we can step into fellowship with him. Step forward. Not beating ourselves up, but spending time with those in whom he's working. Gosh. We, know we will be transformed and all your weakness, bodily, psychological, moral, intellectual, whatever else, it will be transformed. Remember verse one, chapter 1 verse 6, he will bring that work to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. It will be that yo-yo up a hill, there will be discouragements, there will be times of deep conviction and pain, and times of great growth and encouragement. All those things will happen. You will be transformed, perhaps not today, probably not tomorrow. But he will do it. He has promised it. 
he will complete it. So remember this as you walk through the stuff of life. Don't let those claims of the world scare you. God's at work in plenty of people. And we can imitate and walk alongside them to encourage us. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. He loves you. We love and long for one another and we imitate those who are living the real life. The real life that understands that this life is just the beginning. Let me read to you chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You're okay. You're Christ's. Let's pray. Lord, the powers of the world feel powerful. They feel strong. We know our weakness. We know our sin. We praise you, you've overcome the world. Not only in a big abstract sense, but in the deep realities of our life. We praise you that you have been at work among us, in us. That you have worked grace in the lives of individuals we know. That we can walk alongside one another knowing your spirit is at work among us. And that you will not let that work fail. Lord, please would you show to those who desperately need those relationships. Show to them how they can draw close to someone who is clearly imitating you. Please nurture those relationships within the church family. And build your body through them. In Jesus' name. Amen.